Hello everyone. My name is Trevor Cully, and normally I host the History of Persia podcast. You can find that online at historyofpersiapodcast.com. But James is busy, and we didn't want this podcast to lie fallow for too long. I've been thinking about a way to talk about the Bronze Age in Iran for a while, and I think keeping the oldest stories posting new episodes is a great way to do that. Western Ilam is both independent and peaceful for the first time in 200 years. The whole of Ilam is also unified under the kings of Shemashki. Even though King Ishbi-era of Isin kicked Kindatu and the Elamites out of Mesopotamia, peace settled in on the Zagros mountain border. The next two kings of Shemashki exchanged marriage alliances with the Mesopotamian cities of Isin and Eshnuna, and everyone mostly kept to their respective sides of the Zagros. The only major changes from the Ur-3 period were that Shemashki controlled Susa, and they negotiated directly with individual city-states led by Isin rather than the kings of Ur. Trade and political organization remained relatively intact going into the 20th century BC. Political organization in Elam, both under the Shemashkian kings and for most of Elamite history, was surprisingly decentralized. Generally speaking, the kingdom of Elam was more like when different Sumerian cities took over Nippur and achieved regional hegemony than the empires of Sargon or Urnama. We can see this in the titles they used. Mesopotamian sources occasionally mention a king of Elam, but the Elamites themselves usually recorded their titles as the kings of specific cities or regions. King of Awan, King of Shemashki, King of Anshan, King of Zabshali, and Governor of Susa, all appear much more frequently than King of Elam. The old Akkadian military governor of Elam title was fading from use, but some of the early Shemashkian kings kept that one around too. The Elamite kingdom was usually more like a confederation, in the same sense that many steppe empires in later centuries were also confederations. Different regional powers would band together under the leadership of their culture's most powerful monarchy, but the constituent parts were usually semi-autonomous. As a result, the most powerful highland city was usually the city that housed the leading dynasty in this Elamite confederation. Previously, that had been Awan, at this point it was Shemashki, and Anshan was rapidly growing in importance during this period. We can see the transition between power centers in the simultaneous use of royal titles. At least one of the early Shemashkian kings claimed to be both king of Shemashki and king of Awan. And the next phase of Elamite history will see single rulers as both king of Shemashki and king of Anshan. The lowland region of Susiana, basically modern Khuzestan, was almost always treated separately, and up to this point in Elamite history, 
had been basically a separate region from the rest of Elam. From what we can see through inscriptions, names, and archaeology, Susa was traditionally Elamite, but the Susians were also their own distinct subgroup. There were gods from the highlands not worshipped in the plains, and significantly more Mesopotamian influence down there than up in the hills. Given its proximity to the Diyala region and similar terrain, Susa had a lot more in common with cities like Akkad and Eshnuna than it did with the rest of Elam. On top of that, Mesopotamian conquerors had invaded and occupied Susa repeatedly in the last 1,000 years. Akkadian gods were popular, Akkadian artistic influence was more pronounced, Elamite writing was based on Akkadian cuneiform, and the Akkadian language itself was still used for most record-keeping. Well into the Shamashki period, the Akkadian title of Ensi, or governor, was still the primary label for the king's role as the sovereign of Susa. This all started to change in the late Shamashki period. Kindatu, the conqueror of Ur, was succeeded by someone called Idatu in the king list, and Idatu in Shushanak in later inscriptions. Idatu's own inscriptions called him the son of Pepi, so his relationship to Kindatu is unclear. Maybe he was a nephew, or a grandson, or maybe completely unrelated. Idatu's son and successor was Tanrherator. These two mostly carried on business as usual. The most notable accomplishment between the two of them was that Idatu arranged a marriage between Tanrherator and an Eshnunin princess who funded a new temple for Inanna at Susa. After Tanrherator, though, the line of succession gets confusing. He had at least two sons. His immediate successor was definitely Ibarti II, who shared his name with an earlier minor king of Shamashki during the Ur III period. Ibarti became one of the first kings to claim the title King of Anshan and Susa, which would remain in off-and-on usage down through the Iron Age. Ibarti, too, married a Mesopotamian princess, this time from Isin. This is still in line with the king list. But then the Elamite record throws a curveball, and shows another king called Idatu and Shushanak III as the son of Tanruhurater, apparently around the same time as Ibarti. The Elamite king list goes from Ibarti to Idatu Napir, with no mention of this Idatu in Shushanak. That's not all that strange. He's not even the first Idatu in Shushanak to appear in Elamite records, but not the list. But we also just don't know much about Elamite naming conventions around 1965 BC. Idatu in Shushanak and Idatu Napir might have been interchangeable, or the Napir part could be a later development. This is all still about a century before the king list was even composed. Either way, this makes it sound like Ibarti was succeeded as king of Shamashki by his brother. This is entirely normal succession practice, if you don't have any sons or your sons are children. Except Ibarti is supposed to have had a son called Shilhaha, 
recorded as the chosen son of Ibarti in a genealogical document from a later king called Shilkak and Shushinak. Now, Shilkak lived about 800 years later, but there are also contemporary inscriptions and cylinder seals that mention Shilhaha, son of Ibarti. Shilhaha was chosen for a new title in Elamite politics, Sukalma, a title used by the Earth Three Kings and other Mesopotamians to mean something like Grand Vizier or Prime Minister. In the Sumerian and Akkadian context, it was something akin to a super-governor. The Sukalma of Lagash had been the step between the governor of Susa and the king of Ur. As the first purely Elamite Sukalma, Shilhaha was placed in charge of Susa, while Idatu and Shushanak III simultaneously claimed the titles King of Shilmaki and Governor of Susa. Using older Mesopotamian definitions, this would get confusing. But in many cities, the title of governor, or ensi, came to mean something a lot more like king when a city was neither the reigning hegemon nor subservient to that hegemony. By the mid-20th century BC, governor of Susa and king of Anshan were probably pretty comparable titles. So the newly christened Sukalma probably took over day-to-day -day interest in Susiana as the regional governor, while Idatu and Shushanak focused on other prominent cities like Anshan, but kept the traditional title. As the office in charge of day-to-day -day rule in Susa, the Sukalma controlled one of the wealthiest and most developed cities in Elam, even if it wasn't the most Elamite. The Sukalmas would go on to exploit this. Sometime in this period of transition between the kings of Shemashki and the increasingly powerful Sukalmas, King Enna'il of Kish invaded Elamite territory, presumably the region of Susa. All we really know is that this invasion happened and Elamite territory was not affected, but repelling this invasion would have been one of the first major successes for the newly installed Sukalma. After that, only two more names appear in the Elamite king list, Idatu Napir and Idatu Temti. They fill in the gap from the 1940s and 1930s BC. Neither appear in many significant records or royal inscriptions in Susa or any other Elamite city. They are mentioned just a few times in the records of merchants, trading with Shemashki and some of the neighboring cities. Meanwhile, Shilhaha was remembered by his descendants with the title of Adad Lugal of Anshan and Susa, in addition to Sukalma. Lugal is, of course, the Sumerian and Akkadian word for king, and Ada means father. This wasn't a title used by a living monarch, but a way for powerful descendants to remember him as their father king, in association with some of the most important cities in Elam. Shilhaha was succeeded as Sukalma by someone called Pala Ishan, 
Their exact relationship isn't documented, but was probably father and son since future generations continued to look back on Shilhaha as the source of their legitimacy as late as 800 years later. Paula Ishan also seems to be the Sukalma who set the tone and political organization for the rest of his dynasty. Either he, or maybe his father, moved their capital from Susa to Anshan, far to the southeast in the modern Fars province. Unlike the later newly built capitals that were popular in the late Bronze Age, this decision had clearly been building in Elam for years. Already by the end of the Awanite dynasty with Puzar and Shushanak, Mesopotamian documents were treating Anshan as one of the foremost regions of Elam. By now, Anshan was the most politically and economically significant city in the highlands. That said, Susa did not go unattended. When the Sukalma moved to Anshan, lower-ranking members of the royal family were placed in charge of other parts of their territory. But the old title, NC of Susa, was gone for good. Three new positions were invented in the Sukalma period. It's the Ma part of Sukalma that makes it the prime minister, though something more like high king might actually reflect the role better. The Sukalma delegated power to the Sukal of Susa, the Sukal of Shemashki, and the Sukal of Elam, basically the ministers of the other two major cities and a minister in charge of everywhere else. Often, the heir to the throne ended up with all three titles while his predecessor was still the Sukalma. While Paula Ishan was still alive, one of his relatives, called Kuk Kermash, held all three ministries. How exactly Kuk Kermash was related is unclear. He was called the Rahushak of Shilhaha, literally meaning the sister's son, and were close enough to Shilhaha to, for this to still be a literal nephew. But later Sukhalmas were still calling themselves the Rahushak of Shilhaha, 300 years later, so that's probably not the real meaning of the word. Instead, it probably means something more like cousin, or descendant through the female line. Either way, Kukkirmash was probably more of a stopgap or failed usurper, because he was succeeded by another of Shilhaha's actual sons, Kuknasher I. Either Cook Kirmash or Cook Nasher was probably the reigning Sukalma in 1929 BC when the new king of Larsa, Gunganam, firmly transitioned Mesopotamia to the Larsa end of the Isin Larsa period by invading Elam. In his third year on the throne, Gunganam invaded Elam and raided the port city of Pashime. This was probably both a warning and a preemptive strike to the Elamites, as well as an opportunity to stock up on valuable treasure plundered from the city. Pashime was the chief port on the Persian Gulf at that time, and facilitated trade with Dilmun in Bahrain, Magan in Oman, and the Indus Valley civilization. 
it would have contained trade goods bound for Anshan, Susa, and the cities of Mesopotamia. Two years later, Gungunum invaded Elam again and penetrated much further into Elamite territory. He claimed to have destroyed Anshan in this invasion. In decades past, the Shikalmi kings established an alliance with Isin, Gungunum and Larsa's main rival in Mesopotamia, and some form of that relationship may still have been intact. If Cook Nasher was supporting Isin's resistance to Larsen expansionism, that may have prompted Gungunum's attack. Mesopotamian records don't report any more wars between Larsa and Elam, but something happened in this time to give Gungunum power over Susa. In 1916 BC, documents appear from Susa dated to Gungunum's 16th year, but issued from an Elamite ruler with unique titles. This was Adahushu, the Sukal and Chancellor of Susa, Shepherd of Anshushanak, Shepherd of the Susian people, and he who holds the reins of Susa. Adahushu really leaned in to how in charge of Susa he was. But he never claimed the title of Sukulma, and was dating his official documents according to the Mesopotamian year. Adahushu also claimed to be the Ruhushak of Shilhaha. This may have been a false claim for political legitimacy, or entirely true if Ruhushak just means relative. Ancient invaders often put lesser relatives of the previous ruler in charge of their conquered territory. Whoever he was, Adahushu became the Sukal of Susa, and all of his other titles, when he was fairly young. He first appears in 1916 BC, but his name appears on more Akkadian documents from three generations of scribes in one family, and one document dated to the first year of Sumu Abum, the first king of Babylon, in 1884. He was apparently succeeded by another unrelated Elamite governor in service to Larsa, called Tetep Mada, who also claimed to be a relative of Shilhaha and Shepherd of Susa. At this point, Shilhaha must be a distant relationship, given that we are a full century removed from the first Sukulma. What exactly was happening in the rest of Elam at this time is unclear. We have no documents from anybody claiming to be the Sukulma, the Sukal of Elam, or anything to do with Anshan that could firmly be tied to this period. Cook Nasher was probably Sukulma for some of it, but the next person to appear with the highest-ranking title was Shirukta, almost a full century after Gungunum invaded Elamite territory. Whether or not Shirukta had any hereditary right to his title is hard to know. He also claimed legitimacy as the Ruhushak of Shilhaha, but his own successors tied their legitimacy back to Shirukta, suggesting that he could be the founder of a new dynasty. Like previous Elamite rulers with unclear ties to their forebears during Mesopotamian occupations, Shirukta went on the offensive. If the Elamite alliance with Isin had ever lapsed, 
Shirakta renewed it. At some point in his reign, he retook Susiana and expelled the Larsa-backed rulers there before invading Mesopotamia. He joined King Zambia of Isin in a campaign against Larsa. That campaign was apparently a defeat because Larsa remembered the year as the fifth year of Sin Iksham, the year the armies of Uruk, Kazalu, Elam, and Zambia, king of Isin, were defeated by arms. Or 1831 BC, to put it another way. Ultimately, Sin Iksham died that same year, and Larsa fell into disarray anyway. The next king was deposed, and an Amorite army invaded and occupied Larsa itself. Shirakta took full advantage of Mesopotamian cities turning on one another for a few years to expand his own territory. He pushed into the Upper Tigris region and subjugated some of the local Amorite tribes, including the Mutabal, whose leaders took on Elamite names. One of these leaders, Kudur-Mabuk, was the Elamite who conquered Larsa and installed a new king on the throne there presumably with Elamite support to either encourage conflict in Mesopotamia, or at least find a way to ally with the new rulers of Larsa, who were either Kudur Mabuk's sons or puppets. Of course, Shirakta's friends in southern Mesopotamia were mostly wiped out when a little historical figure called Hammurabi came to power in Babylon and turned what was once Sumer into Babylonia. We might expect someone with the historical reputation of Hammurabi to be another example of a short-lived Elamite foray, ending with a new Mesopotamian conqueror invading Susa. But Hammurabi mostly left Elamite holdings to the north alone, and focused his attention on the south. Shirakta got involved in the north. He formed an alliance with the Assyrian king Shamshi-Adad in 785 BC and joined the Assyrians, Eshnuna, and a mountain people called the Tarukians in a campaign to conquer Gutian territory. Supposedly, Elam alone provided 12,000 men for this endeavor. The number itself is clearly an exaggeration, but maybe not as much as we traditionally expect. This point in the early 18th century BC represents the absolute zenith of Elamite political power and territorial reach. If anybody in the early Bronze Age could furnish that kind of strength, it was Elam. Not long after this campaign, both Shirakta and Shamshi-Adad died. While that gave Zimri Lin of Mari the opportunity to return home from Babylon and check Assyrian expansion in the west, Elam just kept going with barely an interruption. One of Shirakta's relatives, Siwe Palar Hapak, had already been the Sukal of Susa and Elam, and easily transitioned into his new role as full-fledged Sukalma. Siwe Palar Hupak appointed his brother Kutu Zalush to be the new Sukal of Susa, and both were in regular contact with Mari and Babylon. Kutu Zalush 
was in charge of Elam's Mesopotamian territories and had the most direct contact with their western neighbors. Even though most correspondence was addressed to the Sakoma himself, the local Sukal scribes handled a lot of the legwork. Kutuzalush was the one facilitating diplomatic gifts and arranging the specifics of trade deals with the foreign kings, while his brother dictated official Elamite policy. Trade deals in particular were of the utmost importance. Elam controlled the flow of trade through the Persian Gulf and the overland route on the Khorasan Road through Iran. That meant control of both luxury goods and the essentials of Bronze Age society. Incense from Dilmun and Oman, unique and exotic designs from the Indus Valley, and from Bactria in modern Afghanistan, precious stones like carnelian and lapis lazuli, and most importantly, the tin necessary to produce all of the Bronze Age's actual bronze. While these trade goods were the most valuable imports from Susa to Egypt, Elamite archaeological sites are also full of more day-to-day -day examples. Artwork, pottery, and even foodstuffs were imported from the fringes of their known world to cities like Susa and Anshan. In one striking example, a god from Dilmun in modern Bahrain even had a temple in Susa, 150 miles from the coast. Their influence wasn't limited to eastern trade. Despite the presence of Assyria, Babylon, Eshnuna, and Mari to the west, Elamite influence reached almost to the Mediterranean, due in large part to their military reputation and control of the tin and lapis lazuli trade. Letters from the city of Katna, sent to Zimri Lin in Mari, show that the western Syrian city even considered giving their territory to the Sukalma in exchange for military support against Aleppo. In all of these correspondences from Katna to Mari to Assyria, Eshnuna, and Babylon, the Sukalma in Elam was constantly regarded as the highest-ranking king. Even earlier, Rim-Sin, the last independent king of Larsa before Hammurabi conquered the city, addressed Shirakta as the great king of Elam, expressing an elevated royal title not used by anyone for anyone else in Mesopotamia at the time. As correspondence with foreign rulers increased in frequency following the rise of Babylon and Assyria, this distinction became more pronounced. The other major kings of the Near East addressed each other as equals, calling one another brother in their official letters, but only the king of Elam was addressed as father. Some of the greatest Bronze Age monarchs, Hammurabi, Shamshi Adad, and Zimri Lin, all regarded Shirakta and Siwe Palarhapak as their royal fathers, their superior monarch. And naturally, the Sukhalmas used this prosperity to their military advantage. For most of the Isin Larsa period, the tin trade had passed through Elam, then Eshnuna, before being sold to Assyria, Babylon, Mari, or beyond. Not so long ago, Shamshi Adad and Assyria had been an expansionist threat, 
and Eshnuna provided a regional check to balance them out. With Assyria now in decline, Eshnuna wasn't as politically valuable. Siwe Palarhapak conspired with Zimri Lin of Mari and Hammurabi in Babylon to cut out the middleman. The three powerful kingdoms ganged up on their central neighbor and conquered Eshnuna. Everybody involved went into this invasion with their own goals. Siwe Palarhapak and Hammurabi were both planning to seize territory from their neighbor and Zimri Lin expected the cost of tin to go down if he shared a border with Elam. If everybody had gotten what they wanted in exchange for their equal participation, then this probably could have gone perfectly. Elam could have continued to be the dominant power in the north and east, the Sukoma would have remained everyone's royal father, and there would have been more room for military expansion in other directions, maybe even into Assyria. But no, Siwe Palarhapak got greedy. The existing precedent was that he was the superior king. He moved into the palace in Eshnuna and sent troops to evict the Babylonians when Hammurabi tried to seize forts and towns to the south. Meanwhile, Zimri Lin kept paying the same price for tin, and Elam got to enjoy all of the profits of Eshnuna's tax policy. To add insult to injury, Siwe Palarhapak ordered his outraged neighbors not to communicate with one another or face military consequences. So of course, they communicated with one another. And Hammurabi concluded a treaty with Zimri Lin that read, from now on, as long as I live, I shall indeed be the enemy of Siwe Palarhupak. I shall not let my servants or messengers mingle with his servants, and I shall not dispatch them to him. I shall not make peace with Siwe Palarhupak without the approval of Zimri Lim. If I plan to make peace with Siwe Palarhupak, I shall certainly consult with Zimri Lim. And so, in year 30 under Hammurabi and year 8 for Zimri Lim, 1764 BC, Babylon and Mari invaded Elamite territory in northern Mesopotamia. I won't elaborate too much here because that episode already exists in episode 44 of this podcast, but it must have been quite the war. Siwe Palarhapak called in troops from every part of the Elamite Empire to fend off these invaders, but it was no use. Hammurabi conquered all of Elam's Mesopotamian territory, and the Sukoma was forced to pull back inside Elam's traditional borders. But of course, everyone in this story is a backstabbing traitor, because Hammurabi turned his own troops around on his ally in Mari, and defeated Zimri Lim just the next year. After that point, the history of the Sakomas is all but impenetrable. We only have a few administrative documents and inscriptions from Susa, but none of it helps to build a timeline. We can figure out the order of who held which lower Sukal offices before ascending the throne based on those records and the genealogy of one later Elamite king. 
we can see that the Sukalma remained the ruler of northern Elam at least into the 16th century BC, and that they continued building temples in Susa. But evidence for a connection to Anshan and the south is all but non-existent. After overreaching their power and a crushing defeat at the hands of Hammurabi, the most powerful empire of their day, the Elamite Empire of the Sukalmas, fell rapidly back into obscurity and disrepair. No dynasty from Elam would reach the same prominence again until the Achaemenid Persians launched their own empire from a royal seat in Anshan a thousand years later. And that is where I'll leave things for today. My next episode will be a break from the political history of Elam to flesh out some information about the Elamite gods before heading into the Middle Elamite period. Hopefully this format isn't too much of a break with tradition. Once again, if you want more from me or to skip ahead in Iranian history, you can find the History of Persia podcast on historyofpersiapodcast.com or wherever you're listening to this. Thank you for listening.